0: Hello and welcome to Softcats Explaining podcast series. This is the third episode of season 6, but please don't forget to check out our previous episodes as they are all fantastic if I say so myself. My name is Dean Gardner, Softcats' field chief technology officer. We're here to explain it. Every episode our team of experts are here to talk tech in simple, jargon-free language. So the key is in the title, and on that note, I will introduce today's topic, Breach for Impacts. This episode will cover the almost inevitable situation that your organization will be hit by an asteroid, or in other words, a security breach. But how can you survive Armageddon if Ben Affleck and Bruce Willis are not available? Well, in the wise words of Aerosmith, you don't want to miss a thing, and our experts are on a mission to guide you through the murky black hole of being breached. To share insights, I'm joined by two brilliant guests, SoftCat's very own security Octonaut, Kieran Newsham, and Ian McShane, fresh from his appearance in John Wick 4. Sorry, wrong Ian. <laughs> this is Ian McShane, who is even more impressive for our amazing friends at Arctic Wolf. Although Arctic Wolf sh- sounds like it should be in John Wick 4. I it think, should be, personally. yeah. It sounds like a superhero yeah.
1: name for sure.
0: It does. So great to have you both with us. First question uh, to you, Ian. I've realised I have a security issue a bit of an annoying ransomware has breached the perimeter. What do I do and where do I start?
1: Yeah, well, hopefully you're not panicking and setting your hair on fire too much because, you know, as any good operations has been practicing their incident response plans. You know, that's the, the key to this is having the preparation done in, in advance. So you're not trying to figure this out on the fly. Because the first thing you want to do with ransomware, as you know, it's it's pretty Contagious, it's going to spread around like wildfire. So, you need to number one, isolate that machine or those machines that are showing those um,
2: indications of compromise, basically. That's the first step for sure. Kieran. I think, um, yeah, just to add to Ian's point, like most customers, if they have any form of security operation, whether that be outsourced, whether that be in-sourced, whether that be a bit of both, the SOC will obviously have playbooks. In order to enact the containment actions that you would need around ransomware, Um, that's like the actual boots on the ground response that you need. If it's breach your containment that you normally would do within the SOC, then traditionally you would escalate to digital forensics and incident response or, or level four, as we commonly know them as. And it's at that point, it's obviously a serious incident. I think the thing that the majority of organizations miss or don't test is those things are normally tested relatively well, depending on the type of customer you know we're talking about. What isn't tested or even considered, even in the largest and most mature customers that I see, is the more geopolitical or organizational-wide processes that need to be initiated for something such as ransomware. So... Those playbooks would normally kick like a good set of playbooks within the SOC would also have a good set of playbooks within the organization that is around operational resilience or governance risk and compliance would all be involved in these types of playbooks from an organizational level, which would effectively start with standing up your major incident team, that major incident team should have verified roles and responsibilities of who does what, it even should go down into the detail of how you meet because a Teams meeting may not be possible if you've just been hit by ransomware, for example. Basic stuff like you should check you've got each other's mobile numbers because you're probably not gonna be able to send each other a Slack message or an email. All of those things should culminate in types of questions the organization should be answering or asking like, do we pay ransom? If we do pay ransom, how do we pay the ransom? You wouldn't send your mum to do a drug deal just like you wouldn't just have the ceo you wouldn't have the ceo negotiating a ransom would you these types of things need to be considered and even some of those things i've mentioned there you could probably go quite a lot of detail into each of those little points really like the minutia of the of the things yeah but yeah that's what we commonly see i think that's that's interesting like cuz
1: i think we're considering a pretty mature security operations organisation and you know certainly hold my hand up I talk to a lot of companies and there are few and far between that are at that level of maturity like I would bet dollars to donuts that most people have never tested a ransomware incident you know whether that's you know shutting everything down properly or just sitting around a table and asking your, your help desk leaders you know what would you do if a employee called up and said hey i've got ransomware on my machine i think if you dial it back to the real basics like it's, it's great to have a security operations and tier four and escalation paths and you know incident response on retainer and folks to do the, the ransomware negotiations with you but eight nine times out of ten most people would be like i have no clue what to do right now
0: so is it safe to say that it's a reactive model and Kieran i know you speak about a lot of how to set things up you know configure your business to be able to be ready do you think that people are still not there they're not they're not taking it as seriously as they should and they're responding to an action something that's already happened and then they're starting to invest and set their organisations up to be more effective are they waiting for it as opposed to being proactive
2: yeah i would say in the whole four out of five organisations probably will be. I think the scenario that I just described, where ideally you would have these things and you would put these processes in place and you would have these people enacting those processes, like Ian says, that's going to be very mature organisations and even then they don't get it right and they probably don't test as much as they should do and they're probably not as proactive as they want to be yet. I think the majority of organisations, if they don't even have that, they're definitely not going to be proactive. It is quite hard to be proactive I think in the last probably decade, we've gone from thinking we could prevent everything and having traditional controls on the edge of our networks like firewalls and then having antivirus on endpoints thinking, yeah, we're good. We've invested in all this technology to the point where we kept getting breached and then we thought, okay, maybe we, sh- we should find some sort of technology and people to use that that can detect and then respond to things that we miss with our traditional controls. And then we s- kept getting breached still and realized, actually, we'd burnt a hell a load of people out um, that worked in our operations teams. And to that point, in probably most recently in the last three, four, five years, we've, we've settled on the point that, okay, it's a question of when, not if. Yeah. I still think a lot of organizations are coming to terms with what that actually means because that's great saying that. And it is an attitude, it's a a culture to go assume breach, assume breach posture, right? That's what we call it. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. But what does that actually mean? I think most organizations have struggled to translate that into I need plans for resiliency not just around availability not just around confidentiality not just around integrity not just around business impact i need to understand what the cyber lens is on the operational impact of of incident and that's quite hard to do from Mm -hmm. many aspects you know a lot of customers are not in a place where they can just do that you can't just turn it on there's quite a lot that needs to be considered you need to hire the right leadership you need the right influence with the right expertise at the right levels, in order to go and convince the majority of organisations which are not cyber security companies that this is something they need to be invested in.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I think I think as an industry, cyber security has done a great job at selling things, tools, services, products. But I think even even now, we do a as an industry, not we we three, uh, as an industry, I think we do a pretty poor job of communicating the risk to the business or the value to the business for for security. Now we're getting better at it. Um, for sure. And helping your business, helping your organization understand that you know, there's two sides to the coin, right? Number one is you're trying to reduce the risk of something happening. Like you said, Kieran, like it's impossible to be 100% breach proof. 100% breach proof does not exist. So you want to address like the risk, but then you also want to plan for the the impact, right? Which is the, the classic MBA, like what does risk mean calculation? It's, you know, the possibility of, a, of an incident and then the impact of that incident coming out. So if you look at it from those two lenses, you know, it's not really about stopping everything. It's about making sure when something bad happens you know, you're in the best hands possible. Mm.
0: So how do you get on the front foot? You mentioned a few things there. You know, If you are starting a business from scratch, how do you get on the front foot? Would you start with building a business around the thing you do? Let's face it, most companies, they're selling something or providing something of a service. But as you're thinking about those things, intrinsically linked into that is how are you protecting your data, the things you're doing on the back end? Yeah. Is it part of the business case now? Because that's what it sounds like to me.
1: It has to be. Security's got to be in there to start with because, you know, at the end of the day, that something, that risk can, can make or break your business. Now, I don't think we're there yet from a, well, from any industry, right, of understanding that one of the first things you need to consider is the security or the cyber security posture of your company. But what I have seen change over the, I guess, last 15, 20 years is just a, better way or a better line of thinking around using external help like if i think back 15 20 years if you outsource something basically outsource was a dirty word offshoring was an indication of you know focusing on saving money as opposed to doing anything um, interesting but i think now as a lot of the business leaders tend to have grown up now with some kind of cyber background or technology background folks are realizing that you know what we can't do this in-house to the best of our ability and so using Third parties, whether that's, you know, Softcat, Arctic Wolf or other vendors to really either bootstrap what they're doing or or manage their security
2: entirely is, you know, become a much more valuable proposition, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. It's not taboo to outsource security. And I think majority of organizations have realized that for many reasons. One, if they've been breached, which is unfortunate, but it will happen. Um, And two, if they've seen value from outsource services and then the last one is probably because they're acutely aware of the talent shortage mm-hmm. and how hard it is to hire and retain most importantly that retention piece yeah within security and especially security operations i think you mentioned an interesting point dean like if you're a new company most new companies would probably say they're born in the cloud depending on their company right i think if you look at it from a technical aspect it's probably easier to dial in your controls and your architecture we still got to do a lot of work on policy, right? So, yeah, cool, I know where my data is. I'm a SaaS company, you know. I know exactly what my type of threats are. I'm worried about DDoS. I know I'm worried about availability. Yeah, I'm still worried about ransomware because everyone's worried about ransomware, et cetera, et cetera. So, I think from a threat model, from an architecture, from a control perspective, it's probably a little bit easier for you. However, I still think we... If you look at it from a risk perspective, like Ian mentioned, we could probably learn a lot from other industries that do manage risk a lot better than we do in cyber. If you look at hospitals, healthcare, look at their major instant response plans, what, what it means to run a hospital and genuinely plan for the worst. If you go and, you know, you could say the same about Ministry of Defence, Department of Defence organisations as well. You could say the same about the aviation industry. If they managed risk, like we do in cyber for the majority of organizations at the moment, just airplanes are just dropping on sky. You know, I think we do have a lot to learn about that. I think we've had this weird incessant urge in cybersecurity to go and eradicate risk. Well, you can't eradicate risk. We have to live with risk. Right? It's simple analogies. We haven't eradicated risks when we drive our cars on road safety. But we have put loads of measures to manage that risk. And that's the most important thing. We have to manage that risk. Yep. And and that is probably by definition what we would say is resilience in the cyber word. We are resilient because we can manage risk effectively in these areas, just like you do in your car with your seatbelt, with airbags, with ABS. We're happy with managing risk to acceptable levels in other areas of our of our lives mm-hmm. and in other industries. But for some reason in cyber we were obsessed with eradicating it because we don't think it should be there which is untrue
1: yeah i'd I'd even take it a bit further it's that most people are focused on perfection and Mm. you end up with that classic phrase of letting the the you know perfection be the enemy of of good enough and so how long has multi-factor authentication been around now like 10 years at least at least 10 years probably more than that but It's been around for so long, but we still have this discussion. I still have to have this discussion every month, every week with organisations about how important MFA is, and they're like, "Well, we just can't roll it out to everyone, or or John in accounts will have a fit if he has to do anything else technical with his you know computer." And like, it's not about perfection. You know, start small. Start with the most important accounts. You know, just put MFA on the things that you know hold the keys to the kingdom. And I think that's to your point about you know not reducing risk to zero. I think we're also chasing that perfection of it's too hard to do i don't want to do it
0: so just basics and and yeah multi-factor authentication's been around longer than that i was in secure id tokens that was my right there you go. RSA, 15 years ago ID. or 20 yeah, years ago doing yeah remote access desktops you know people think that's a new thing
1: to be fair that wasn't infallible because they lost the algorithm for that right
0: yeah exactly so so but it's evolved let's say that a lot um, but st- people still in in some cases don't use it, which is which is fascinating. So, can we realistically stop someone attacking, or, or it sounds to me it's it's inevitable. so you're you're preparing for that.
1: Well, I mean, can you stop anyone attacking? you know. I think you can you can lower the the chance of a successful attack or a disastrous outcome and the way i think about it is twofold and you know what i get asked this all the time it's like i you know i've got a limited budget limited people limited time where should i focus and for me the obvious place to focus is on initial access how are they getting their foot in the door things like you know i'll give a plug to our, our labs team at arctic wolf we just re- released our um, 2022, 2023 uh, Labs report last week, and we talk about a lot of the incidents that we saw from our incident response team over the uh, the past year. And if you look at the initial access, it breaks down basically into two buckets. Like one is like a user action, and one is a risk that was exposed to the internet. Now, user action should be obvious. Like you know, someone's been tricked into doing something. Someone's clicked something. I don't want to get into a a debate about whether users should be clicking things because I will go off on one because hyperlinks were invented to be clicked and emails were invented to be opened. So (laughs) if I hear anyone saying, don't click stupid links, they're going to get something thrown. So, (laughs) But if if you think about that, like we we do hear a lot of the time that end users are to blame, but realistically we saw in the last year less than 20, 25% of actual breaches, successful breaches that ended up costing money and, you know, costing uh, incident response time were actually caused by external exposure, which is what you ex- exactly what you would expect, you know, a vulnerable application published to the internet, RDP available to the internet, stolen credentials being used to access a, you know, an application that's uh, published to the internet. Which brings me to, I guess, in a roundabout way to, to the point I wanted to make is that we're talking here about business risk. And I think humanity for the most part now is so entwined into the digital era that everything about security impacts personal lives and business lives and so like I said I get frustrated when people talk about end users being the weak link and end user, this was the end user's fault and you know stupid Steve from accounts shouldn't have opened that excel spreadsheet or wired the money to a you know bitcoin account or whatever what we have to bear in mind is that we position cybersecurity as a benefit to the business we don't For for the most part, most organisations will be saying, hey, this is a compliance thing. You need to take this training every year. You need to take this training every month. You need to tick this box and sign and say, yes, I've understood the training. I understand the acceptable use policy, which is essentially a way for a company to fire an employee for doing something wrong. Right. It's not necessarily (laughs) there to improve the security posture. It's more about covering their own backside. And so, if you take a different position and start to talk to people about how, look, you're using passwords at home. It's just important to protect your user credentials for your bank and for everything else, as it is to you know to protect your business credentials. So, one of the things I like to propose for organisations is, like, every you know every Christmas rolls around. Some you know some companies might have parties, give out gifts, give out a bonus, whatever. How about as part of that, you pay for a year's subscription to a password manager, so that people can use it in their personal life and you know just really start thinking about cyber hygiene cyber risk from their own perspective so that when you have a conversation with them at work it's not oh bloody hell
2: these people at work are trying to get me to do more work again you know yeah i know i'm getting my mom then for her, for her birthday <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> his is a uh, cyber art license uh, there are other available, <laughs> yeah. by the way <laughs> it's an expensive Christmas present, isn't it? <laughs> also, she'll never be able to implement it. Oh, look, it's just, it's just yeah, like real it's life. A placebo, yeah, there we go. Uh, <laughs> I think the key message I would say is we can defend against attacks. We can defend against advanced persistent threats as well. Unlike, uh, you know, a lot of people on the internet or a lot of people in the industry would say you cannot. You just need to accept that you're going to get breached. I mean, yeah, we accept we're going to get breached. We've just just talked about that, haven't we, for like ten, fifteen minutes? you can successfully defend against those attacks from APT or APT-sponsored threat actors or threat groups. We've seen that in Ukraine. We've seen it. There's, there's currently a, a malware arms race, if you like, going on in Europe because we have a war in Europe. And we're seeing cyber warfare like we've never seen before when, with probably the most advanced APT groups associated with, with Russia, being used against Ukraine for disruptive purposes, um, in terms of wiper malware, for uh, intelligence gathering, in terms of troop movements, for misinformation, to, to decrease morale and things like that. And we should expect these types of things to to be used in, in for N, what we call NGOs as well, non-government organizations coming up, I would say, too. But U- Ukraine successfully defended itself against a lot of these attacks and they've analysed and that's how we know about them, right? So saying we can't or shouldn't defend is, is incorrect. If you look at the Brazil World Cup t- winners of 2002, they still play with four at the back. They still are a goalkeeper. It's not like they just went, do you know what, we're going to score more goals than everyone else. Yeah, they did. They were an amazing team with quality all over the pitch, including Roberto Carlos, Cafu. They were two defenders. You know, I think the thing is, we get confused sometimes because there's a lot of messaging. And to Ian's point, there has been a decrease. um, If you look at the UK cyber breaches survey, so UK specifically, there's been a decrease in people adopting frameworks and using them. Because I think people have realized that my security strategy isn't a framework. I can use it to help me, but it's not my strategy because it isn't related to my business. There is no context of my business. It's not going to prevent me getting breached just because I am PCI DSS compliant, just because I have ISO 27001, just because I am Cyber Essentials Plus compliant. It's not going to help me prevent, breach or defend against attacks. I also think with ransomware, there is a misnomer, I think, in the industry that I don't think some vendors, some immutability vendors help with by saying you need immutable backup. Yeah, you do. (laughs) I agree. I agree. Yeah. I agree, you do. Most people have had that by very definition of having a tape off-site backup for like the last <laughs> 30 years anyway. Yeah. We won't talk about that. But if you look at the, at the ICO stats, how many recorded data breaches have they had from ransomware compared to someone losing their device on a train or on a bus? And I'm not saying you shouldn't have immutability, but I'm saying we need to look at the facts. And and we need to understand our risk it goes back to that goes back to the risk it goes that's the R word right? Um, we need to understand that better to make better decisions, I guess, around our business and what that means for us. Because yes, we can spend loads of money on immutability, um, and we should have some sort of immutable solution for our cloud data, for our, the data within our data center. But we also need to look at endpoints, assets, users, and how they're accessing and using that data as well.
0: Yeah, it fascinates me actually the responsibility on the user. Is greater than it's ever been. To, to, you mentioned it earlier, and, and we did an episode. The last episode was around you know data and data usage, and that you are expecting your internal IT teams to take ownership. But fundamentally, the crossover has already happened. Our home life and our work life, in terms of data security, they're in tr- they're linked. They're just you know you have to become uh, educated at a higher level from a user perspective, just because of how we use technology at home, and it translates into how we do things. Certainly in In businesses. Whereas in the past, I think it was always IT, it's an IT problem. But it it sounds from what you're saying is there's just an elevated education that needs to happen across ultimately society to kind of make people aware that what they're doing online, how they're using devices, how they're interacting, they've got to be more aware of what their responsibility is and not just rely on, as you say, kind of putting firewalls in place or antivirus on endpoints. So I think it's fascinating. There's definitely from the last couple of episodes, I'm Understanding more personally the responsibility that, that exists on us all to educate individually, not just, you know, to your to your point, your mum, you know, she's online. She's, you know, she needs to be a bit more probably, and I'm sure you educate her very well, Kieran, but she has to be, I guess, more aware of what's going on. So it's fascinating that there, that there is a common theme that certainly is, is emerging. Um, from what from some of these episodes we're doing. But you know, why why has security, why has it overall become such a big business? This world, why is it so, you know, it's it's a big business now? It's it's, it's a multi-billion trillion mm-hmm. dollar industry.
1: Hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, if you look at if you just look at the the cyber cybercrime industry though, I think that's the biggest economy outside of the US or China. I think ransomware and cybercrime is a bigger economy than the US and China. Maybe it's even more. So, you know, I think I think there, there's there's money to be made on both sides of the coin, but again, it comes down to risk. And I think it's, it's, although, you know, I'm going to kind of contradict myself from earlier, I think we don't do a good job of explaining how to manage risk, but I think as an industry, I'm trying to be very politically correct. I think as an industry, many salespeople and organisations are very good at tugging at that risk heartstring to sell more things. And... I think that's one of the problems over the last, I guess, 20 years, is people just accumulate, or organisations accumulate their own tech debt in terms of security infrastructure. Like if you think about where the industry's gone from you know, standalone AV that wasn't centrally managed to centrally managed AV to SIM being the be all and end all and collecting all the data for the rest of time. And then SIM didn't work and becomes operational. And then goodness me, 2012 was a, a big explosion for machine learning as if that was, you know, the newest invention since fire. And so, you know, you get all these tools that are easy to sell because they're promising a better life. They're promising reduced risk. They're promising 100% detection and, and 100% prevention, which, you know, is, Clearly nonsense. So there's there's a lot of money in this industry, really, and it's easy to sell. And I think we on the defender side um, are the ones that really struggle most And with dealing with that, that overhead, that technical debt and trying to consolidate everything together. You know, we talked about the kind of outsourcing and the operationalization. I think that's one of the drivers behind it is that folks have spent so much money. They look at their balance sheet for the past 10 years and like I've spent tens, if not hundreds of millions on subscriptions, on products, on tools. And my risk has not reduced or at least I cannot communicate
2: how my risk has reduced at all. Yeah, t- I totally agree. And you know, it actually it's per- it links perfectly with one of the points I'm about to make. I think the first point I'll make, though, is cybersecurity is a vocation is still established in itself. And what you tend to find in throughout history with those types of vocations, something new is. There is a lot of fluff, there's a lot of money to be made. Where there's a lot of money to be made, obviously, you'll get a lot of products, you'll get a lot of vendors, you'll get a lot of marketing fluff. That's just natural. I think it's interesting that Ian said, it's probably coming to a head now in 2023, where the majority of market analysis, market research, industry analysis, industry research, and vendors are now adopting platform plays and pushing consolidation. Um, If we look at the biggest software vendors in the world, Microsoft and Cisco, to name two of them, I think that's two of the top five, actually, then they're all going for a platform play and say, you should consolidate, obviously consolidate with us, but you should consolidate. And I think I agree with them. I agree with the messaging. There should be a consolidation. We've seen multiple customers over the last 12 months, at least with 15 plus vendors for security alone, and they've been breached. It's not a cure-all having and spending a lot of money. I I use a football analogy again, Paris Saint-Germain. Spending a lot of money on a football team does not mean you're guaranteed to win things. does not guarantee success. It's the same with security. It's the same with anything. You need a plan. Yeah. And the plans at the moment, most customers are talking about the the consolidation piece Mm -hmm. um, and having that lattice, if you like, of security products that do jobs in an area yes i need a point product in some areas but they must work together they mustn't overburden my my security staff i must be able to consume them easily if i outsourced a portion of that operationally all these sorts of things yeah
1: i think you nailed it like for the most part point products work just fine like most security products do a good job sure some could do it better than others and some are annoying but for the most part, most tools work. So if it's not if it's not the tools that are broken, it has to be how they're managed, how they're implemented and how they're run. And, you know, to to hack onto a, a trope from the last couple of years, there's just not enough people to do this stuff. Like we see stuff all the time about, you know, there's not enough people to hire or we can't afford to hire all of this stuff. I think Kieran, you nailed it right at the start when you, you actually said about retaining staff, because that's the mm. the key for most organizations is you might have some people that learn and get into that role, but as soon as they leave, you've got a, a big gap it's not just the the person that you hired originally two years ago it's the skills and the knowledge that they've accumulated over the past two years that's just just gone out of the door and it's really hard to to backfill for that kind of knowledge when people talk to me about the skill shortage you know I look at some of the the job postings and it's you know hey we're looking to replace this rock star unicorn person that's just left when the reality is they're still trying to spend the same in salary and package as they were when they hired that person three or four years ago when they were you know maybe a bit more junior and people don't understand that it's the knowledge that they're trying to
2: acquire not the the butt in the seat yeah 100 percent. with the retention challenge your gap is actually getting bigger Mm -hmm. every time you hire if you don't sort that out Mm -hmm. for every two years i mean you could hire three people you've got six years worth of knowledge experience and expectation that you've set in the business yeah that you now have to replace, like you say, in the same price, the same package, you know, the same working environment. It's impossible.
1: Yeah, it is impossible. You're right because as soon as someone has got that experience, then they are much more attractive to a another competitor. And to be honest, like where I see most of the talent going is actually into the security industry. Vendors are hiring as many people as they can to run their own security operations, to run their own teams, to run their own products and tools. So they're picking up all the people and, you know, with the the venture capital background or the, you know, public company money behind them, they can, you know, offer some pretty attractive salaries that many, air quotes, normal organisations just can't match.
0: Yeah, good points. Um, Are we seeing, and you mentioned it earlier, I think, Kieran, with the the war in Europe, are we seeing this rise of state-sponsored attacks on critical infrastructure and systems? Is that this hidden threat, you know we don't hear about it on the news as such we hear about these kind of odd things that happen and you mentioned a few things earlier that certainly i don't think anybody would have heard about on you know your national news it kind of touches upon it i guess on occasions but are we seeing it behind the scenes i guess as a huge area of development that people just need to be more aware of
2: yes we're seeing it more um i was speaking to someone very learned in the threat intelligence industry last week about this and he referenced it as similar to when pirates would roam the seas and buccaneers would be paid by nation states to go and basically stop trade routes being plundered and we called them privateers. I think it's an incredibly good analogy, actually, and that's basically what we're seeing with the links between advanced persistent threat groups that are 100% linked to nation states and they don't chill out on dark web forums. So... No amount of threat intelligence is going to get you close to them. That's a completely different level of covert operations, right? Real James Bond stuff. I think um, they're starting to branch out to e-crime syndicates. And we've seen code being linked um, with ransomware groups like Conti, Lapsus, all of those types of threat groups. Their code's been linked to APT uh, and to each other, actually. Because malware or ransomware has been commoditized because you can make a lot of money out of it. And we've realized that actually you don't need advanced and sophisticated malware or advanced, sophisticatedly trained people to go and deploy that malware to actually gain money from it. It's like Ian said, it's one of, if not the biggest industry in the world for making money. So I do think we need to be aware of it. It will happen increasingly frequently. And much like you do with any arms races in, in World Wars and history, you know, we wouldn't have been as far as we are with radar or jet propulsion and flight and, and, you know, unguided missiles, guided missiles, all that sort of stuff without World War II. As bad as it sounds, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be where we are today technologically advanced wise. It's going to be the same with, with malware and, and ransomware and cybercrime in general because it's being used up front in a war, in a real war person-to-person war that's going on Mm -hmm. on the european continent as we speak and it's just part of that war yeah I, i agree like if you
1: look at the past year there was a well yeah past year or so there was a pretty significant drop in ransomware ops that were happening that just so happens to coexist with the time that russia invaded ukraine and you know there's Like you said, there are some very, very specific links to specific crime gangs, but you can also draw the dotted line to say, well, if there's a lot of money to be made in it, why would they suddenly stop? And it's probably because they got asked to focus on something else. So if they spent the last year figuring that out and now, you know, everyone releases their threat reports in January, February, March and says, oh, ransomware's on the decline, blah, blah, blah. no. Absolutely not, and we start to see it pick up again this year. And you know that could be where the either the, the state-sponsored stuff is drying up, or the attackers essentially have decided, "Hey, we're running out of cash. I need to buy a new Lambo. Let's go and start doing some more ransomware attacks." Or if they've just become disillusioned with the entire operation in in, in Ukraine. But there's definite, you know, there's definite links, and there is even more, you know, dotted links to to kind of talk about how those things are, are related. I ebb on the side of disagreeing that people need to pay attention to a lot of the state-sponsored stuff or the critical infrastructure stuff because what I don't want to see is organisations get distracted and say, well, you know what, I'm not critical infrastructure so they're not going to attack me. Or, you know, I'm reading all this stuff about what you have to do to protect critical infrastructure and I can't see how that relates to to my organisation. Because again, you know, if you read the the threat reports for the past year and, you know, vendors announcing that ransomware is in decline doesn't make much difference if steve's business I keep saying the word steve the name steve <laughs> I don't know why it doesn't make a, it doesn't make a difference to poor old steve when his business is shut down because of ransomware it might be on the decline but it's still a huge risk like still a huge risk to everyone I think Kieran, you touched on the you know the related stuff to ransomware, things like wipers, and I think that's where we're going to start to see similar blowback to things like NotPetya a few years ago, which obviously was was linked to Ukraine, and that kind of leaked out. It was supposed to be a very targeted attack to you know take out a very specific thing or to gain access to a very specific area of Ukraine, and it ended up you know knocking out quite a lot of, of systems just by the way it worked, and ultimately. We're getting to the point where we've gone from ransomware saying, hey, we'll unlock this if you, if you pay us, to kind of double extortion, where it's like, hey, we're, we're not going to unlock it and we're going to publish this to the internet. And I can see it getting to the point where it's just going to be, do you know what, if you don't pay us, we're just going to wipe everything and you know, walk away and we don't care. Yeah, I totally agree.
0: So, wow. On that note, can we, uh, is there a positive we can leave it on? Anything that we should be <laughs> uh, excited and pleased about?
2: Um, I think in general, we are getting much better. If Again, if I'll reference the UK Cyber Breach Survey, one of my favorite surveys, because it actually has some positive vibes in it. It's not all fear and <laughs> certainty and doubt. Um, people are listening because cybersecurity is now top three at a board level and over 80% of companies nationwide. Also, people are listening because all of the NCSC's kind of initiatives are being adhered to in some way. Mm-hmm. So they, the um, NCSC has something called 10 Steps to Cyber, you know, over seventy percent of companies have implemented fifty percent. So five out of ten of those ten steps, in some form, most of them actually concentrating on um, authentication credentials and assets because they recognise them as areas where they have lack of control or weaknesses. Um, we've also got way way better at user education, cyber pedagogy. I call it because it sounds fancy, doesn't it? it sounds cool. <laughs> we like to do that in cyber, but we've we've obviously done a lot better in that. Um, because exploit and vulnerability's gone up but we're starting to stem the tide of phishing initial access vectors still loads of it and it's mm-hmm. still of great concern still easy. right yeah. yeah it's still easy and people are going to click on stuff because i'm with you Ian. I, I telling people to stop clicking on stuff is fundamentally telling people to stop living their lives like they normally would mm-hmm. you know um, if we were still in lockdown because of the coronavirus i'm I'm pretty sure there'd be mass riots yeah <laughs> so we we should we should probably stop telling poor non-IT or less IT literate people or cybersecurity conscious people to stop clicking on stuff because mm-hmm. they're not going to do that. And we're not either. I'm, sh- I'm sure we've all been nearly done by a phishing scam. Yeah. But, so I, I do think we're getting better at that anyway. But like the general person on the street will know what phishing is. That's a result in itself. mm mm-hmm. There's plenty of positives. We're getting a lot better. Yeah. Um, user awareness education's much stronger in organizations. We've got better board-level representation. Uh, people are taking things more serious, seriously. People are looking at things more strategically. We're also getting better at um, quantitative analysis. We're not quite there yet. We don't have a model or anything like that. But we are starting to pin monetary values to, to having cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. I,
1: and I think we t- we touched on nation-state, and I think – that's always a bad term or a threatening term or a f- term related to FUD. But I think over the last at least five years, maybe maybe longer behind the scenes, I think you can see that governments and nation states have actually put some effort into trying to educate the public, trying to educate their country. Like if you look at the work that CISA have done in the US over the last couple of years, has been a, a massive jump in awareness. The same with the NCSC in the UK and even the EU is that, that you know they had NIS and so now they're talking about NIS two and they're really raising almost the standard not quite enough they're not saying hey this is what you have to do but they're starting to say this is what you should be doing as an organisation in terms of digital risk and this is the you know these are the, the fines and the penalties outside of it now they're still using security as the punishment stick right they're saying hey this is what you need to do and this is how you do it otherwise you know x y and z repercussions happen but I think regardless of what you think of you know insert your local government or your country's government here I think all governments are starting to really understand that they have a part to play in this as well. It's not something that just the private business community can solve by itself.
0: Cool. Ian, Kieran, thank you so much for joining us today. Please listen in to our next episode. We'll be chatting about chat GPT, those chat AI engines that are impacting all of our lives every day. So follow us on your preferred podcast platform.